Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In God, Grades, and Graduation, Religion's Surprising Impact on Academic Success, published by Oxford University Press in 2022, Ilana Horowitz offers a revealing and at times surprising account of how teenagers' religious upbringing influences their educational pathways from high school to college. Religious students orient their life around God so deeply that it alters how they see themselves and how they behave inside and outside of church. Ilana Horowitz is an assistant professor and Fields Ryan Cheer of Contemporary Jewish Life at Tulane University. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome, Alana. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So to get started, uh, could you tell us, please, a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Sure. So I began um, writing this book several years ago, and the idea came to me in 2015, I would say. I, um, at the time, was a doctoral student at Stanford University, and I was pursuing my PhD in sociology of education and Jewish studies. Um, And I was in my third year, and I had come to Stanford really to study Jewish education. I was really interested, for example, in how families made decisions around their children's Jewish education. Um, And in 2015, I came across the Pew Research Center's uh, study of the religious landscape of America. It was a study from 2014, this large nationally representative study. And the leading headline at the time was that there was a decline of religion in America. But when I opened the study, what stuck out to me was not that there was religious decline, but what surprised me was how incredibly religious America still was. And I realized that in my mind, America had become secular a really long time ago. Um, I, th- I think I, I thought it was up there with Europe in terms of secularization rates. And I think <laughs> I was really struck by the fact that about a quarter of Americans still very much organize their lives around religion, especially um, around Christianity. And I said to myself, um, wow, how can I be a good scholar of American Jews if I don't even understand religion in America? So I decided to take a step back and think a lot about religion broadly in America. And then a second thing, a second realization was that in my classes at the time at Stanford, I um, was spending a lot of time thinking and talking with my professors and my colleagues about the role of race and social class and gender in America and how that influenced academic success. But we never talked about religion. And so I remember having this realization, like if religion is still so prevalent in America, might it influence how kids do in school? Um, So I started doing some research and I thought I'd find a lot of stuff written on this topic and I actually didn't. And so that is, um, that's how I came to write this book. I went to my dissertation advisor and I said, hey, uh, I know you brought me here to study American Jews, but how do you feel about me writing a dissertation about conservative Christians? And this is how this book was born. 
Right, I see. Okay. And um, uh, just to step back a little bit, uh, your book focuses on specifically on, on college education and the attainment of a college diploma. How important is it for an individual to have a college diploma? In other words, what impact does that have on uh, people's lives, uh, obtaining a college degree? Mm. In the United States, having a college degree, and by that I mean a four-year bachelor's degree, is incredibly important. Um, It didn't used to be the case, but now we live in a society where the bachelor's degree has really come to be the dividing line in American society. And some of the specific ways in which the, the benefits of a degree manifest themselves are in along the entire life course. So people who have a bachelor's degree, they live much longer, healthier lives, like several years longer um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. They are, earn a lot more money. And so as a result of having more money, they can afford more and better health care. Um, they have much more social support, which they get from their college networks. There are a myriad of benefits of going to college, um, which, is, which is why it's such a big focus of my book. Right. And what is the relationship between economic class and the likelihood of a person finishing a college degree? Mm. Yeah, the relationship between one's socioeconomic background, which some people uh, refer to as social class uh, or socioeconomic status, and their likelihood of completing college is very positive and strong. So let me just give you an example. If you are a child who is born into a family that's in, let's say, the top quarter of the socioeconomic distribution, your likelihood of eventually earning a college degree is about 60-65%. If, however, you are born into a family that is in the bottom 25% of the socioeconomic distribution, the bottom quartile, your odds of completing college are about 15%. And um, the, the, there, there are many factors outside of actual intelligence and ability that make that relationship so strong. Right. And uh, your book really focuses on the issue of religion and its relationship to to um, to education. And you talk about the difference between religious traditions and religious intensity. What are the differences between these two concepts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can think of religious tradition as the, let's say, f- Let's, let's pretend we're talking about ice creams. So you can think of it as the different flavors of ice creams. Uh, this is, by the way, an analogy I, I use from, um, I think it's Robert Putnam um, and David Campbell in their book, American Grace. So they refer to religious traditions as ice cream flavors and religious intensity uh, or religiosity as the sort of intensity of the flavor. And so in the United States, right, we have a lot of traditions, right? We have Um, Protestants, we have Catholics, we have Jews. Those are different traditions, different flavors of religion. But then within Christianity or within Judaism, right, you have, you could be more or less intensely religious. And so that's what I mean by religious intensity. And so in my book, I am specifically interested in the flavor of Christianity. And I'm specifically interested in the kinds of kids who grow up in, um, in, in homes where there is pretty intense religious practice, where a lot of life is organized around religion. Um, these are religiously intense kids. 
Right. And how does um, religious intensity manifest? What does it look like uh, to people from the outside? Yeah. So sociologists who study um, religiosity or religious intensity often start with looking at survey measures. And that is what I did as well. So I, um, I'm sure we'll talk about my methods, but briefly, I'll just say, right, I use this nationally representative survey of over 3,300 teenagers who I follow over the course of um, 10 or so year period. And so when they join the study, when they're 13 to 17 years old, uh, they fill out a survey that has a bunch of questions about their lives, including many questions about their uh, religious beliefs and behaviors. And so the kinds of kids who look intensely religious on a survey, for example, say things like, I feel very close to God. I attend church on a regular basis, like once or more a week. I pray by myself, you know, at least once a day. Um, my faith or my religion is very central in how I make major life decisions or everyday life decisions. So on, on surveys, those are the kinds of questions that make them fall into the highly religious category. Um, and then I read, um, I also used interviews with these teenagers uh, because we might say to ourselves, well, maybe there is some sort of social desirability bias, meaning like maybe the kids want to look more religious on surveys or they, feel, you know, I say like, oh, I'm a gym goer, right? I'm a person who exercises. That's part of my identity. And so if you ask me on a survey, like how often have you been to the gym in the past month? I'd be like, well, in the past month, it hasn't been that much, but really I'm a gym goer. So I'm going to overstate how often I've been to the gym because my identity is in a person who exercises. This happens with people who are religious too. We know that from other data, people over-report their religious attendance. So one of the things I wondered was, okay, do these kids um, who look religious on surveys, are they actually religious? And so I've read um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews with them, many, many, many hours of interviews. Um, and it, it was really interesting because the kids who look religious on surveys in their interviews they also share many stories about how religion influences their lives. And it's hard to sort of fake that for two hours with an interviewer. Um, so in stories, uh, they talk about, you know, how, even without being prompted, you know, saying like um, things like, you know, I uh, pleasing God is really important in my life. I, um, you know, the kinds of things I do for fun are like having Bible verse contests with my friends. Um, no one's speaking that. <laughs> we, we, we should talk about, I love that, that person, or talking about how um, their life purpose is really to serve God, even without being prompted to, to say that. So those are some of the ways in which they look religious. Right. And what percentage of Americans are deeply religious in the, in the way, uh, in, or intensely religious in the way that you're describing? I'd say 20 to 25%. And I, that estimate comes from both my own data, as well as recent Pew data, as well as um, GSS data. I would say, you know, there's this a notion that the United States is becoming more secular. And on average, that is true. But there's an important caveat that most people misunderstand. And that is that the number of um, there's like the people in the middle. And then you can think of you can sort of think of the people that are not religious, people sort of in the middle and people who are very religious. So it is the case that people in the middle are becoming less religious. 
And the people who are not religious are increasing. So it's like the middle and the bottom are converging and they're growing in size. But there's this quarter of Americans who are not budging. They have been intensely religious. There's a great paper from 2018 called, I think, like the persistence of exceptional religiosity. There is still a quarter of Americans that continue to organize their lives around religion. And that number isn't really budging. Right, right. And you talk about the, signif- the the shift in significance in the past several decades from religious traditions, right, the flavors, what, what kind of religious faith uh, uh, group a person is a part of, to the importance of the religious intensity um, um, in, in terms of just how devout people are. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? That this shift. Yeah. So it used to be right in sort of the probably 50s, 60s, 70s, the big divides in American society were along religious tradition. So you had the Protestants, the Catholics, the Jews, right? And they they didn't really like each other. In fact, there was a book uh, by Will Herberg called Protestant Catholic Jew. Those were the main dividing lines. Um, And it was, you know, taboo like to bring home somebody of a different religious tradition. Now we have shifted to a place where Religious tradition doesn't matter as much as religious intensity, meaning that um, the big dividing line is like the avowedly secular versus the intensely religious. Right now, we live in a moment where, for example, um, Haredi or ultra-Orthodox Jews will find much more in common with evangelical Christians than they would with reform or conservative Jews, which wasn't the case, you know, uh, 50 years ago. Right. And um, how does the religious commitments of the students you study affect how they perceive themselves and how they imagine their futures? So in the book, I draw heavily on this notion of having a God-centered self-concept. Self-concept basically uh, means like how you view yourself and your place in the world. And for kids who are growing up in these intensely um, religious homes, God plays such a central role into how they view themselves. And it starts from, um, there's both this belief dimension of religion and a belonging dimension of religion. And so this, the belief dimension means that if you are a kid who believes in God so strongly, you not only think that God is, um, sort of watching over you. You also think God is evaluating you and that God is with you everywhere that you go, right? He's uh, with you at home, in church, but also everywhere else you go, which means also in school. And so having a God-centered self-concept means that everything these kids do or a lot of what they do is constantly driven by their belief that God is watching them, evaluating them, supporting them, both in this life and in the afterlife. Um, And for many kids, they have a very active and reciprocal relationship with with God, where they talk to God and God talks back. Um, Tanya Lerman has a really great book, two great books called um, How God Becomes Real and um, When God Talks Back that describes what this looks like. And I see it also in my data that, you know, kids often believe and feel that God is sitting next to them, that they're having, you know, um, dinner with God uh, and his presence really fundamentally alters how they behave in the world because they always want to behave in a way that they think God would um, appreciate and um, and sort of uh, give them good credit for. <laughs> right, right. And then speaking of 
about their futures, about how these uh, um, you know young Christians um, are, uh, imagine their futures uh, as a result of these religious uh, uh, feelings or, or or beliefs that they have. Yeah. So there, um, if you are a kid who believes that God is, is watching you and is with you all the time, a lot of the ideas that you have about how you are going to live your life in 10, 20, 30 years, God plays really centrally into that fixture, uh, picture. And so for some kids, that literally means like my life goal is to, is to, is to do some sort of like religious work, um, some sort of outreach work. Whereas for other kids, it's like they want to be altruistic um, or be parents, that that is their central goal because they think that those are the kinds of um, life choices that God would really appreciate. So whereas for, for lots of kids, for example, um, one of the things I, I noticed in the data is teenagers were asked, you know, who do you admire? Like, who are some of your role models? And a lot of teenagers will say like, oh, this famous, you know, basketball player like Kobe Bryant um, or some famous musician. Um, but for kids who are growing up intensely religious, like Jesus, Jesus plays, uh, came up often as like the person you most admire and want to emulate in the world and your role model. Right. And are, uh, just to, 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 um, uh, a highlight for a second, um, um, the exact, a little more about the exact um, re- uh, religious denominations, the flavors, so to speak, that the 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 teens that you're you're looking at uh, come from. Are there particular denominations that these um, that these students are a part of? Mm. Yeah. So the um, the teens that I focus on. Uh, specifically in the book, I call them abiders. These are these intensely Christian kids. They are made up of different types of sort of Christian denominations. So about half of them fall into conservative Protestantism or uh, evangelicals. About 12% of them, I think, identify as Black Protestants. 15% identify as Catholics. um, 12% identify as mainline Protestants. And then there's a small percentage that also identify as uh, Latter-day Saints or Mormons. Um, so it's some people think that all conservative Christians that I talk about are always evangelical, but that's not the case. There are only about half of these kids. And in, in fact, I think it was surprising for some people to learn that um, intensely religious Catholic kids don't sound tremendously different than intensely religious Protestant kids um, in terms of the way in which um, religious belief and belonging influences their academic behavior. Right. And I'm just curious, is um, what is the geographical distribution of the students that you study? Mm. So the National Study of Youth and Religion, which is the primary data set that I use, was um, nationally representative uh, in 2003, meaning that the kids in the original sample um, were all over the United States. Now, my analysis looks at all 3,300 of those kids. The quarter of the kids that I'm most interested in, um, in the book that I that I highlight the most, these intensely religious kids, they are all over the place as well. I mean, they are more likely to be in the South, right, in the Bible Belt um, and in parts of the Midwest and West. But 
you know, I, there are certainly narratives and kids that I highlight from the Northeast as well. And I find them in urban centers more often in suburban or um, uh, uh, rural communities. Um, but people who read the book, you'll, you'll meet uh, sort of kids throughout the United States. Right, right, um, and as you mentioned, um, you you use the term abider for the mm-hmm. people who remain, they abide, they remain uh, deeply connected to the religious faith that they were uh, raised in, um, and you talk about the abider advantage. Mm-hmm. What is the abider advantage? The abider advantage means that kids who are abiders, who are these intensely religious kids, they have an academic advantage, meaning that they have, um, on average, they earn better grades in middle and high school. And um, depending on what socioeconomic group they fall into, they go on to have better, um, they're more likely to complete college. So the abider advantage is the specific notion that there's this academic advantage that comes from religious belief and belonging. Right. And what is the mechanism that produces the abider advantage? In other words, why is it that students that are deeply you know, uh, committed to their faith end up doing better at, at, at school? Yeah. So this question, right, is really at the heart of this book. Um, so I mentioned that there's two dimensions of being religious that matter. There's belief and there's belonging. And so each of these plays a different mechanism. The belief dimension is this is this notion that God is watching me wherever I go. And the reason that matters is because for kids who believe that, they end up behaving in very conscientious and very cooperative ways. These are kids who come into school, even like as early as kindergarten, they have already learned from their religious upbringing that you listen to authority, that you follow the rules that you are kind, compliant, and you do what is asked of you and you don't make a big fuss about it. They've already learned to be really good rule followers. And so we, one might say, well, why does that matter in the classroom? And the reason it matters is because if you are a teacher of 30 rambunctious teenagers or 30 rambunctious kindergartners, we might like, you know, we like to think that, oh, we, we, Kids get rewarded for being creative and critical thinkers, but really teachers love kids who are just going to sit there and do what is asked of you and, 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 and be kind to other peers in the class, right? Teachers reward kids for being well-behaved because it makes their job a lot easier. And so the, if you are a kid who believes that God is watching you, um, you're going to behave in this very conscientious and cooperative way. And as a result, you're going to get better grades. So that's the, that's the belief that's sort of how belief matters. And I see that across all social class groups. And then there's a belonging aspect to religion that also comes into play. And it comes into play, especially for kids from working class and middle class backgrounds, for non-affluent kids. Um, and here's what I mean by belonging. If you are a kid who is growing up in a religious home, who is also then part of a religious community, it means that you are actively Um, going to church. And when you do that, you end up developing and being part of a larger network of other people, of other adults like ministers or other people, um, other kids' parents, other adults in the community. This creates a, um, what sociologists call social capital, right? This sort of web of support and trust that flows in your life and in your family's life. 
And the reason that it matters for non-affluent kids is because the sort of church is, is the last sort of free form or free source of social capital that exists for kids today. If you are an affluent kid growing up in America today, you have sources of social capital from other places. Like you don't need the church for that because you have your, your parents have gone to college. They have lots of um, networks through their own college experience. They work in professional organizations. There's a lot of social capital there. You probably live in a more affluent neighborhood where there's more social capital. So you don't need the church for social capital. But if you're a working class or lower middle class teen, you need the church and sort of belonging in the church to develop that social capital. And the reason that matters for academic success specifically is because when you have that social capital, you're much less likely to fall, get into trouble. Um, This especially matters for boys, right, who have a tendency to uh, engage in risky behaviors like alcohol and drugs and sex. Um, if you're if you have this access to social capital, you're less likely to sort of fall into trouble. So it's this belief and belonging dimension of religion that comes together to have kids basically be better behaved and have more uh, sort of adult oversight that translates into better grades in the middle and high school years. Right. Is uh, the the part about the better behaved? Is that what you mean by the religious restraint? This mm. this factor of religious restraint. Yes. Yeah, so religious restraint is a term that I use throughout the book to refer to a particular child rearing logic, a child rearing style that parents adopt. Uh, parents who for whom um, God is really central adopt in raising their kids. Um, for any listeners who you know listen to any like sociology books or um, uh, anything about child rearing, right? We over the past um, several decades, um, as a result of the great work of sociologist Annette Leroux, have found that the way people raise their kids is very uh, class based, right? And Annette Leroux introduced this, these two child rearing logics that she found. She said that. Parents from the professional class who work in like professional class jobs, let's say they're consultants or um, sort of even middle managers, they raise their kids in what she calls concerted cultivation, right? It's this kind of child rearing style that kids learn to, you know, uh, advocate for themselves and you sort of treat your kid as a project and you cultivate it to grow. And she distinguished this from a child rearing style that was more prevalent in working class homes. Um, where she called that child rearing style natural growth, which is this idea that you leave the kid. It's not a project to be cultivated, not a seed to sort of cultivate, but you leave them to grow for themselves. And as a result, they, um, you know, they develop better relationships with their family members and there's other um, benefits. And, but there are also some downsides in terms of um, how they interact with their teachers. The reason that those two child rearing logics matter and where religious restraint comes in is when I was reading Annette LaRose um, work, which I did a lot of as a graduate student in sociology, I realized that those class-based child rearing styles don't account for the role of religion in kids' lives. And in fact, one of the kids in her book, his family went to church often. And I wondered like, does that matter? And so the thing, one of the theoretical contributions I try to make with my book is to introduce this third child-rearing logic that cuts across social class lines. I call that religious restraint. And I use um, the term restraint because what it does for kids is basically it 
makes them sort of, um, it gives them the kind of self-control um, that ends up both being beneficial, but in some cases detrimental in, in how they grow up. But they're, they're very, um, they're raised to have very strong sense of self-control. Right. And is it possible that the what you call the abider advantage of the very religious students doing better in school, that is it possible that this is just a, an effect of the kinds of families these abiders, these uh, religious uh, kids come from and the attention that their parents gave to them, the kind of parenting style that their parents uh, um, um, showered them with? Yeah. So this is a great question. And this is this, this question of like, is it really just the family that matters? Like, what if, um, is it is it just the case that kids who are growing up religious, let's say they, they happen to have the kinds of parents who are willing to sit with them to do their homework or go to PTA meetings, these are also the kinds of kids who are going to do better in school. Is it really just the family? And so to figure this out, this was a really important um question because it introduces uh, an important confounder, like an, an important sort of third variable that makes it possible. It's not really a story of religion. It's a story about family. Um, and so to figure this out, I used a very a different data set. It's called Ad Health. It stands for the National Study of Adolescent to Adult Health. Um, this is a study that followed 20,000 teenagers. They've been following them since the mid-90s and continue to follow them today. The reason that ad health is really important is because they have this unique um, data collection strategy where they sample siblings within the same family. And siblings are really interesting to study because they allow you to essentially control for or sort of net out the effect of families and even neighborhoods. Because you can assume that kids who are growing up a sibling, especially uh, biological siblings, are having a similar um, experience growing up in the same families. And so statistically, we're able to look at the um, siblings within the same families who have different levels of religiosity, right? Like, let's say you and I were in the same family. I was highly religious. You were moderately religious, but we shared this home environment and this neighborhood environment. Um, in these statistical models, we're essentially able to control at, or uh, using these things called sibling or family fixed effects, um, able to control for everything that happens in the home and then just look at my, my, my grades and your grades. And it turns out that um, the kids, even kids from the same families who are more religious will do, will get better grades and go on to complete more years of college than their less religious sibling. And this particular study, which was published in a journal called Social Science Research, is um, it's called Not a Family Matter. Um, and the reason is because it basically confirmed this, this idea like that it's not just the families, that religion matters and has some sort of causal mechanism, even when you take the family component away. All right. That is really uh, remarkable. Um, uh, so you talked about the religious restraint, uh, this effect that religion has on keeping kids on track, so to speak, to do well um, academically. Um, does the religious uh, restraint affect students of all economic classes in the same way? So we see the story um, differ when we look at the sort of middle high school years, the secondary school years compared to college. So in secondary school, 
all kids, regardless of their socioeconomic status, um, benefit. They all have an abider advantage, meaning that kids who are poor, um, abiders who are poor are more likely to earn A's than non-abiders who are poor. Working class abiders are more likely to earn A's compared to working class non-abiders, right? We see that consistently throughout. However, when I follow um, teenagers into their college years, I do see a difference based on socioeconomic status. What I find is that the working class kids and the middle class kids benefit the most. Kids who are poor and kids who are from the professional class lose their abider advantage. Uh, Why is that? (laughs) Yes, that's a good question. So I mentioned that the sort of social capital of religion really helps working class and middle class kids. Basically, if you're in the professional class, whether you're an abider or not, your chances of graduating college stay at 60, sort of 60, 65%. If your parents are in in the professional class. Say it again. If your parents are in the professional class. Exactly. If your parents are in the professional class. And what I mean by that specifically is like that both of your parents um, have a college degree. That's usually who ends up falling into the professional class. And most likely your family uh, in 2003, right? It's been 20 years since then, but was earning, you know, probably like, let's say sixty to $70,000, which in current dollars is probably more like $150,000. Um, so the professional class is both based on the, oh, and your parents probably work in fairly prestigious occupations, right? Because socioeconomic class is made up of your income, your parents' income, your parents' education levels, and the prestige of your parents' occupation. And so regardless of your sort of religious intensity, whether you're an abider or not, if you're in the professional class, if you grow up with these professional class parents, your chances of graduating college, of getting that four-year bachelor's degree are about 65%. Two-thirds of kids complete college. And it doesn't really matter because the um, uh, the kinds of, the sort of, the road, here's something that's important to understand. I should have said this earlier is like, the road to college looks profoundly different for kids from different socioeconomic backgrounds. So if you're growing up in the professional class, early on, your road to college is pretty smooth. It's pretty narrow. It's uh, it's pretty straight. Uh, there aren't a lot of potholes. And if you get off, let's say, like pretend there's an exit, you get off the exit, let's say you get suspended or you get expelled or you get in trouble, there are a lot of opportunities to get back on the on-ramp. Like your chance of still making it to college are very high. However, the lower down on the socioeconomic ladder you go, the bumpier and the steeper your climb to college becomes. By the time you are, you sort of get to kids who are growing up poor, right? These are kids who are growing up, um, actually worried about having food on the table, growing up maybe in mobile home communities um, who move around a lot, definitely not college educated parents, people living in the poverty line. The reason it's so hard to get to college is like your road is so bumpy. It's so potholy. And one mistake, like one behavioral problem in school, that's it. Like your sort of educational career is is over, right? There's not a lot of resources to help you get back on track. And so where religion comes into play is we can think of religion um, as providing essentially a set of um, guardrails for kids. And so for working class kids and middle class kids, who end up um, not having the resources of professional class kids. They don't have that kind of social capital. They end up falling into, um, uh, you know, 
a sense of despair, which we should talk about. Um, religion provides a set of guardrails for them that keeps them out of trouble. And when the road to college is bumpy, you need those guardrails to basically keep you on track. Um, that's why for the working class and middle class kids, religion still benefits them. Then the question is like, well, why doesn't it benefit poor kids, right? This is a surprising thing because the, this, the abider advantage for the during college is really for the middle 50%. It's not for the wealthy 25% or for the poor, the 25% who are poor. The reason is because life for people, um, Americans who are poor is so hard and college is um, so expensive and so difficult to get into for a myriad of reasons that sort of religion can't offer enough to pull these kids out of poverty and to help them overcome all the obstacles that they face growing up poor. So if you look at um, abiders versus non-abiders in my study, um, I think their chances are about 10 to 15% of graduating college, regardless of their religious um, sort of intensity. Right. And you also talk about um, uh, a surprising, potentially surprising um, finding in terms of the effect that um, intense religiosity has on the sort of uh, the children of uh, people who are well off and that has a kind of, um, um, yeah, sort of a surprising under, effect. Under what is that? Yeah. So what, um, so in addition to not being any more likely to graduate from college, if you're a kid growing up in the professional class, what I find, and this is the, one of the reasons that the book is called like was a surprising impact on academic success. One of the things that's surprising is that they end up undermatching in the college selection process. So what does undermatching mean? It means that um, they are going, likely going to schools that are less selective than they could probably get into given their grades in high school. So Abiders in the professional class overwhelmingly get straight A's. They are on the honor roll. They're doing a bunch of extracurricular activities. Um, they're really stellar um, students on paper. Um, and so with kids like that, you would think, oh, maybe you want to apply to a selective school or we would expect them to apply to some selective schools. But that does not appear to happen. Um, they end up going to schools that are moderately or non-selective. And the reason I argue in the book is because they have a self-concept of themselves. I introduced this term earlier, basically a vision of their life unfolding in a way where they are prioritizing life goals centered around parenthood, altruism, and service to God, which means that for them to have self-concept congruence, for them to sort of have a life that aligns with what they think is socially valued in their community, um, they don't need to go to a faraway college because to go to a faraway college, right, you only need that if you're going to then want to go to um, graduate school. And that's only for people who want to have really um, prestigious careers that require a bunch of other steps. But if you just, um, I mean, these kids in the professional class, don't get me wrong, they all want to go to college. They know that's part of what it means to be in the professional class, but they don't have particularly um, sophisticated uh, notions of what college going looks like. They don't care about going anywhere sort of fancy or prestigious. They're very happy to stay close to home um, and or to go to a religious college nearby. They're also another reason why they undermatch is, you know, kids who 
believe that God has a plan for them, they end up um, being more passive in how they make college choices, right? Because if God has a plan for you, um, that God probably also has a plan for you about where you're going to go to school. And so for, um, I remember when I was growing up, you know, uh, me and my friends and, uh, we were sort of crazy about the college selection process, right? Like we got brochures to all these places and we did all these college tours. Like we were very proactive about it. These, the abiders tend to be much more, um, sort of complacent in the process and sort of take a back seat. Um, and then they're like, you know what, there's a school down the street and I'm perfectly happy doing that. And so those um, factors uh, combined, right, they're, they're not looking to please college uh, admissions counselors. Uh, and so they, they just have a very different way of prioritizing their life goals. And this is what I argue leads to this under selection or under matching process. Right. And I just want to put out there. So when I heard about your book initially, I was really surprised by it because by its findings, because uh, as someone who grew up in the ultra Orthodox Jewish community, um, we're um, uh, secular education in general is considered um, uh, uh, is denigrated, is looked down upon as a, a kind of impurity, as something that's morally corrupting, as something to be avoided, and where college attendance um, is is really taboo. I was really surprised that all of these, you know, intensely uh, devout Christian uh, teens were were not only attending colleges, but were. Um, excelling at them, uh, uh, in them. And I'm just curious, like, did you come across anyone um, who said that because of their devotion to God and their concern about, um, you know, living the, the sort of pure religious life, that instead of going to college and doing well there, they should actually avoid college entirely because of its potential for moral corruption? Yes. Yeah. I actually don't think that that experience that you had growing up and that notion of college is profoundly different. I think one of the, the differences is, is like, these are, um, because these are kids who are growing up in Christian America and sort of like college is part of like mainstream, you know, America, uh, it's not seen as much of an outsidery thing to do as much as it is in the ultra Orthodox community, right? Where people speak their own language, they have their own customs and, higher education is seen as um, sort of morally corruptive because it's so culturally different. Um, so, so there is some concern about that, um, particularly where I see it is, is, is that there's a sentiment that college makes you more liberal, um, that college professors are all going to brainwash you and make you not religious. And there is for sure a, um, a fear amongst the abiders growing up that if they go away to college, that they're going to be questioned about their religion, that they're going to sort of lose their way. They are kids who are not particularly open to new experiences, right? Like they're because they're the kinds of kids who are very conscientious and cooperative, kind, compliant. They're also not kids who are very open to new experiences. They like sort of social homogeneity. They like things pretty clear cut for them. Um, and so one of the reasons they want to go to college close by is because some of them want to actually live at home so that they don't sort of face that moral corruption that they think college um, is going to have. 
there were, um, you know, you asked whether there were kids who said like, oh, college is going to corrupt me to the to the point where I don't even want to go, or their parents said that. I don't see a ton of that. I do have, um, I remember this one girl who actually grows up in the professional class. Her mom is a superintendent and her dad is a politician. She is the kind of kid who you expect to go to a highly selective school just on the basis of her socioeconomic background. But she... Um, she had like this lifelong goal of being a missionary. She said that when she was 10 years old, she was in church with her grandmother and she passed her no- a note to her grandmother and said like, grandma, one day I'm going to be a missionary. And, um, and this is exactly what happens. In fact, she talks about how she went into the SATs and she intentionally tried to do bad on them so she wouldn't get into a good college because she didn't want to go to college. She wanted to go overseas for two years and be a missionary. And this is what she does. She goes um, to somewhere in South America. She works there as a missionary for two years. She comes back and um, I think gets like a degree in mammography. And I think ends up getting married and has a pretty simple life, much less, I guess, um, materially successful, you could say, than her parents. Um, So there is this sense that like going to college, a selective college especially, and then having a prestigious career, that that is morally, you know, materially corrupt, right? Material possession isn't something that is valued, especially um, in these communities. And so um, so I, I do think it aligns with some of the ideas, although not as strong as what you grew up with in the ultra-Orthodox community. Right. And I'm curious, this um, phenomenon of the, the undermatching of, uh, be, because of, um, you know, religious intensity, um I'm wondering if this affects a young men and women equally. Hmm. I do see it affecting women more so because they're for them self, the self concept of motherhood is so strong um, that they're the ones who are most more likely to stay close to home. Men do um, while for the abiders, parenthood is still really important. I think they're not undermatching as frequently so it is something that affects women more often. Right. And, and you know, one thing I'll say is one of the, um, I mentioned to you, I was like the, uh, when I was at Stanford and I was reading this Pew religious landscape study and starting to wonder about religion. I, um, I went at the time I was living in family housing and I, I had a kid of my own. And so I was spending a lot of time on the playground with other parents who lived in, in the family graduate housing area. And I realized, um, that I lived amongst a lot of um, families that identified as evangelical and as LDS. Um, and so I started- Latter-day Saints. Uh, as Latter-day Saints, yeah. And so I start, and what I noticed is that in all of the cases, and I cannot think of an exception, um, there may have been exceptions, I just didn't meet any. It was always the case that it was the man who was in graduate school, you know, working on their MBA or their PhD or um, some other sort of professional degree. And the women were all at home with their children. And I was like, it's 2015. It's Stanford University. How am I still seeing such traditional gender norms in this particular setting? And all these women had gone to college but they didn't have any aspiration to go to graduate school because it wasn't important for them in terms of um, uh, how they saw their lives unfolding because they wanted to stay home with their children. That was their life purpose. 
Yeah, it, it's interesting when you 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 mentioned that, um, and I saw this uh, in the book, and it got me thinking that uh, I know from my own family and some of the other women, uh, young women that I know in the ultra orthodox community who are who are abiders who are are still part of that community. Um, I I find it interesting that 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 a bunch of them uh, have college degrees. But the college degrees themselves tend not to be from uh, especially kind of competitive uh, colleges. And then they tend to, even if they're, you know, really smart and did well in college, they tend not to kind of push themselves to get advanced degrees. Or again, if they get, uh, you know, a master's degree, it's in a kind of applied uh, area like uh, speech therapy or physical therapy or something like that, rather than you know physics or <laughs> uh, philosophy, a PhD in physics or philosophy or something. And I think it's just interesting to think about that. That um, obviously um, there's a lot of factors that go into um, uh, the selection process, as you mentioned about uh, how people choose which undergraduate. Uh, uh, college to go to, but then also um, um, the factors that go into deciding whether or not to pursue a post-baccalaureate degree, and then if so, what kind of degree, you know. And of course, some of that has to do with intelligence, it has to do with schooling, it has to do with finance, with economics, of course. But there's also other factors, things like uh, what uh, what is the com- the perception of the people in the community that you're a part of? How do they view college education or advanced degrees and so on? Yeah, I mean, I think this particular story um, has stuck with me over time. I, um, at some point when I was in, in grad school, I my kids were actually going to uh, Chabad for an after school program like the, um, I don't know, you can explain Chabad probably better than I can. <laughs> To, to uh, Chabad is an ultra orthodox Hasidic uh, Jewish community that's involved in uh, uh, outreach work to other Jews who are uh, and tries to encourage them to be more religiously observant. Right, and so my family was not, you know, uh, we were not doing it because we wanted to be more religiously observant, but because it was like really a good form of Jewish education, and I loved the Chabad family, and they were. Um, they had this great after school program. And so I sent my daughter there. And I remember at one point I was talking to the, um, to the woman who runs it. She, at the time, I think had four children and it was time to sign up our kids up for summer camp. And I said, are you sending, you know, are you signing up your, your kids for gone, gone Izzy? That's like the Chabad camp, um, in, uh, that they would have most likely sent their kids to. And she said, and I admire this woman so much, but she said, no. And I said, no. And she goes, I have waited my entire life to be a mom. And this is such a short period of time. You know, I only get to do this for 20 years and then they're gone. <laughs> and I was like, but you homeschool your children. Like you're with them all day. And she said, no, but I just can't get enough. Whereas like, you know, I love my kids, but I cannot wait to go to work. I love my job. It makes me feel fulfilled um, in a different way. And I'm perfectly happy sending my children to camp, to school. And it is, um, my self-concept is very different than her self-concept. And one is not worse than the other. It's just like, um, and in my social circle, which is like mostly, um, you know, liberal Jewish women, I don't really know. I know one person who has stayed home with her children. Everybody else works. Um, so there is something in the in the communities we're growing up in about what is socially valued. And in the 
So, uh, you know, in my community, I think I would get sort of a second look if I said I'm going to stay home with my children and homeschool them. Um, that isn't the social norm. Right, right. So I think, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, um, speaking as sociologists, I think it's obvious to us, but maybe less obvious to, to some listeners that um, often when we look at, you know, if you ask people, like ask women, well, uh, you know, how much do you know want to stay home with your children or something like that? You know, it could, their responses could seem like, quote unquote, natural um, 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 realities, you know, that, that like, this is just the way it is, quote unquote, women like to be with their children all the time or whatever it is, you know, and, and we sometimes don't realize that even something that seems uh, like such an intrinsic thing, so much a part of who a person is, that this is actually, uh, at least uh, in part, the result of conditioning, of social conditioning. It's based on messages that we hear. It's based, uh, it's reinforced by certain um, um, signals from society that this is a positive choice, that this is a negative choice, and that 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 conditioning really impacts uh, people's thinking about these issues to the extent that when you ask them at once they're 20 or 30 or 40 years old and they say, oh, well, I just want to do this. I just want to stay home with my kids or I just, you know, whatever it is that they're actually expressing, at least in part, the social conditioning that they have undergone regarding these issues. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, I'm pretty sure that if I had grown up in a Chabad community and if this woman had grown up, you know, in my world, we would probably have opposite views, right? There's nothing innate about uh, uh, or not fully innate about how much time we have decided to allocate to um, child rearing. Uh, it's very much a product of the, of the conditioning and the kinds of social communities and religious communities in which um, she and I were raised and how different they are. Right, and I'm just curious since we mentioned about the Jewish context, um, I noticed in your in your book that you talk about how Jewish girls uh, seem to have a different self concept uh, than uh, the Christian girls that you are mostly focusing on, and I'm curious what that. Uh, um, uh, uh, self-concept for young Jewish uh, women is and how that affects the the matching process that you f- that you discuss in terms of which colleges they they choose to go to yes Jewish women um, have a very different self-concept although I, I want to clarify that the Jewish women I'm talking about in the book um, are are mostly non-orthodox women and if they were orthodox they probably wouldn't look like this so the concept the self-concept of the jewish women who are mostly reform conservative sort of like religiously liberal um, women growing up um, with jewish parents at least one one jewish parent their self-concept very much is oriented around uh, prestigious careers they want to make a difference in the world, but they want to do that not through altruism, but by um, by being something prominent. They have no qualms about being in the spotlight, about having a, a career as a, a politician, a doctor, a lawyer. Um, material wealth is not something to be frowned upon. Um, and for them, they want to have children, but it is uh, very much secondary. And so when you have a self-concept like that, you know, some people will say, oh, well, Jews just do well educationally because they value education. That's not true. Um, There is a lot of social, psychological, and structural factors that make educational attainment possible. And so for these Jewish women, it's not that they value education. It's that they want to have the kinds of careers that that it takes 
graduate school and and um, selective colleges to actually get into those positions. And so they back into essentially the self-concept early on in high school saying like, well, if I want to go to, you know, be a politician, I got to go to grad school. I got to go to the selective college. I, I got to have this fancy CV now. Um, and what we see, you know, I argue that a lot of this has to do with a very egalitarian um, nature of, of American Judaism as outside of orthodoxy, right? Judaism is amongst the most egalitarian traditions. And so what I argue is that parents are teaching in Jewish homes are teaching their boys and their girls that they can be anything that they want to be. And we just don't see that um, necessarily amongst other American um, uh, religious groups. Right. Right. And so your book focuses primarily on um, religiously devout um, uh, teens, especially Christians, um, but you also studied atheist students. Uh, are there qualities, characteristics of these atheists' uh, student beliefs that also prove to have positive effects on their education? Yeah, atheists are really interesting. And so the reason that they are interesting is because statistically, at least in the survey that I use, um, and remember, these were adolescents who joined the study in 2003, so it's a long time ago. But statistically, they weren't, um, their grades in high school were just, uh, were not statistically any different than abiders, meaning that they were doing very well academically. And I spent a long time thinking about this, and especially because a lot of my colleagues um, who read my work about the religiously intense kids, they were, you know, professors at a place like Stanford. And they said, I just don't see myself in your story. Like I'm an atheist and I've done very well for myself. Where am I in your story? Um, and what I, what I argue in the book is, is the following. The kind of kid who was willing to go on record in 2003 to say that they don't believe in God is also the kind of kid who's already thinking outside the box and is a particularly intellectually curious kid. Here's why. In 2003, only 3% of Americans were willing to say that God doesn't exist, right? This is a country that overwhelmingly believes in God. Um, and so if you were the kind of kid who's willing to say that God doesn't exist, um, you were also a kid who was taking a lot of agency in sort of your thought process. And so in reading the interviews with these kids, these were kids who said, like, I'm reading Nietzsche and Plato, you know, and I'm like, that's not what most 13 to 17 year old kids are doing. Um, they were kids who were not particularly uh, uh, sort of feeling the need to conform with the social order. They were OK being outcasts in their school. And so what I argue in the penultimate chapter of my book is that there are two ways to do well in school. There's probably more than two ways, but here are two ways. You can be extrinsically motivated to please God and that means you will be very conscientious and cooperative and you will get good grades because your teachers are going to reward you for being the good kid. Alternatively, you can be intrinsically motivated to pursue knowledge, to be sort of autonomously driven in that knowledge pursuit. This also, you know, you may not be the best behaved kid, but you're a kid who's actually thinking critically about material. That's a second way to do well in school. And so that's, um, that's what I argue leads to this atheist academic success, but they're a very small percent of the population. Um, and so they're hard to study. 
Right. But it's interesting. When I read that part of your book, I thought, uh, well, you know, this is like the, ap- the opposite of damned if you do, damned if you don't. This is blessed if you do, blessed if you don't, regardless of whether or not the student has a deep religious commitment or the opposite as an atheist. They, in both cases, uh, seem to, to do especially well um, in school. Yeah, the kids, um, some of the kids who do the best are kids who grow up as abiders and then they move away from religion in their early 20s, say in college, right? Because they both have this like conscientious and cooperative behavior early on, but then they're also the kind of kid who's really thinking outside the box, really open to new experiences, which I argue is important for people in their 20s. I see. And uh, okay, here's the last question. Um, Your book seems uh, to paint a very positive picture, uh, for the most part, in terms of the relationship between intense religious commitment and educational attainment. But isn't it possible that this relationship privileges the docility and compliance on the part of students while stifling creativity and critical thinking skills, which are at the heart of true learning? Yes, absolutely. And I talk about this extensively in the conclusion, right? Because a lot of people will say to me like, oh, should I bring my kid to church? Should I make my kid more religious? And I said, well, you know, just because they're getting better grades, it doesn't mean that they're actually learning anymore. And it doesn't mean that you're teaching them the kinds of dispositions that you want to be teaching. Like, do you want to be raising really kind and compliant kids? I don't know. That's for you to decide. But just because they get better grades um, doesn't mean that religion is teaching them or that they're learning more. I was Um, interviewed a few months ago by the Archbishop of New York, um, Timothy uh, Dolan, Cardinal Timothy Dolan. And he said, he said, does your book tell us that religious upbringing is good for for learning? And I said, no, it doesn't. It tells us that it's good for getting good grades, but that's about being well-behaved. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're learning anything. Um, So one of the things I really want readers to walk away with and to think about is this like, is is this critical question of, religion may lead to better grades, but are you actually, right? Because these kids are really good at the hidden curriculum, the rules, routines, and regulations. Is that what we want our schooling to be about? Maybe not. Mm, well, that's something we're going to all have to, to think about. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you for having me. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.